Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we began the new season of the Narrative Lectionary with a look at the story of creation as told in Genesis 2, 4b-25. We marvel at the description of an artisan god forming creation from the clay of the earth in an act of artistic improvisation. We reflect on the fundamentally relational nature of the created world in which humans are meant to be in deep relationship, not only with God and each other, but also with plants, animals, and the earth. And we wrestle with the concept of human partnership as a helper corresponding to us, one who stands in front of us as an equal and challenges us in healthy and productive ways. Welcome to Season 5. Hey, Amy, it's the fifth season of Bible Worm. Can you believe it? Welcome back! Yeah. It has been a long time since I have seen you in the context. It's just that I haven't seen you really. I haven't really seen you. It's been a long time since I've seen you. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We don't have many other contexts in which to see each other. Yeah, tell me, okay, this is the question I always ask my B'nai Mitzvah students. What is the least boring thing that has happened since the last time I saw you? The least boring thing. Notice it doesn't have to be actually interesting. Yeah, I think the least boring thing just actually just happened is that I went on a little family vacation with my spouse and our kids to see my parents and my Mm -hmm. sister's family. We did a little, we did like a little like visit the homestead, you know, like where I grew up. And then we all went over to this little campground in North Carolina where it was like glamping kind of. And we mm. stayed in a yurt. And nice. there was also like a double-decker bus where you could stay. And we, my, my wife really wanted to stay in the double-decker bus. But I'm like, look, we got a two-year-old and we're going to spend our whole time yelling at our two-year-old not to climb the not stairs. To, yeah. Yeah. So we got a one-level yurt, and it was very, I don't know, it was yurtish. It was nice. It's, it was yurtish. I yeah. don't know that I've stayed in a yurt, although it's on my list. You have to book them a little farther in advance than I usually think about such things. Yeah, yurts are in high demand, apparently. They are. They yeah. are. Yeah. So that was probably my least boring thing. What's the least boring thing that happened to you since I've seen you last? I think the least boring thing for me also just happened— I did a week um, in this two-year program called the Davening Leadership Training Institute. Davening is the Yiddish word for prayer. And so it's like people, Jews from all over the country and from like really all stripes of Judaism, like every possible way that a Jew could pray. And it was... uh, it was like mind blowing to see the different ways that people encounter prayer and it was overwhelming sometimes. And it was, I don't know, it was a lot. Like I'm kind of still, kind of still processing it. And on the way back, I'm trying to see this as a gift from God, but it didn't really feel like that in the moment. On the way back, we got caught in uh, these big Southern storms, these summer storms that pop up. And so it took me 28 hours to get oh, from Connecticut no. back to Atlanta. We were like rerouted. We finally, we were delayed and delayed and then rerouted into Raleigh, North Carolina. And like the poor gate agent had no idea what to tell anyone about how we were ever going to get to Atlanta or how we would get to a hotel at one o'clock in the yeah. morning. I mean, it, it really was. But I tried to think of it as like this liminal period in the desert and I'm like not ready to reintegrate and yeah that would have been a more appealing metaphor if I had gotten more sleep (laughs) (laughs) yeah I have very much trouble uh accessing that sort of this terrible travel situation is a blessing from God in the moment 
Mm. I can often like three mm. years later, I'm like, oh, that yeah, was a really Oh, that was that great. Yeah, yeah. Now that you've slept and eaten. Yeah. yeah. But now we're back. We're yeah, back. We're back. And Bible Worm is back. All is right with the world. I do get to come a little unhinged without Bible Worm. Bible Worm is like a anchor point of my <laughs> life, as it turns out. Like I'm, I'm usually glad when Make rolls around and we have a little. Yeah, bit of like time a off. little break. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I lose my moorings a little bit when I don't talk to with you about the Bible. Once it a has, week, we've been doing this for a while. We've been doing yeah. this for a while. It's, has become a regular feature of our time. Amy, our first text this season is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4b through 25. And this is what we sometimes call the second creation story in the book of Genesis. I don't know. I mean, nothing has happened up until now, right? Because this, this is the creation of the world. I guess we got Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4a. Yeah. yeah. So... Can you, do you need to set the stage? Do you want to set the stage for a reading of this text? Hmm. I don't know that there's, I don't, you know, honestly, if I were teaching or preaching or really studying this text, I don't know that I would start with Genesis 1. You know, some people read uh, the Bible in a way that, that implies that like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have to go together. I right. really see them as two distinct stories of creation from different sources or, you know, describing different elements of an incredibly complicated thing, the best best we humans can write it down. So I don't actually think it's helpful to to talk about what happened in Genesis 1 because I don't think Genesis 2 knows what happened in Genesis 1. That's the way I read too. And, you know, I think for people who are trained in source theory and documentary hypothesis and all of that, that comes pretty naturally for people who read the biblical text sort of mm-hmm. sequentially uh, as a coherent narrative, sometimes that can be a little disturbing, or at least I have found that to be the mm-hmm. case with some of my students. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you that it's, to me, the richest way to read it is to think of Genesis 1 as one account of creation that is making some claims in certain kinds of ways, and Genesis 2, 4b to 25, as a second, a different account that does mm-hmm. not, as you said, does not know Genesis 1. And is making some similar claims, but also doing so in some fairly different ways. You get some different emphases. And if yeah, you try to make them sure. fit together, you lose the distinctiveness of right. both texts. That's how I right. tend to think about it. Yeah. All right. Here we go. All right. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field crops grew, Because the Lord hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit And also he grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So one of the things that's so interesting to me about this text is it starts out by saying what is not there, right? It's like Mm -hmm. before any of these things had happened on the day that God began to create. Why do you think the text starts us that way? It's so interesting to me and it's so interesting to like read it as a text it is this is an excruciatingly long sentence like yes <laughs> nobody would write like this if they were writing and so i really imagine like i imagine like storytelling mm. around a fire and like you're setting you're setting the context for the beginning of the story and you're doing it in in terms of what people know now like things weren't like what they're yeah. like now but it, yeah, this like series of asides yeah. is so interesting. I really like that. So you have to sort of unmake people's understanding of the world. So there wasn't right. They're this. starting there wasn't with that. an, wasn't, right, yeah. right. All these things you in know. In order to get back mm-hmm. to nothingness. How do you picture, mm-hmm. so the moment, the moment before God starts to create, like do you have a mental image of like mm-hmm. what it looks like? Okay, so there it seems like there is an earth. Yeah. 
there is dirt, yep. but there's no grass or trees or anything like that. And it doesn't rain, but the earth is wet or can be wet by, by water that comes up from the ground. I yeah. read a translation of this as it was mist, but usually I, say, I see yeah. it's like a flow of water. So there's like moist dirt and yeah. no, no humans. Yeah. I have a very specific image in my head of what mm. the earth looked like at this point. And I was thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking like, what is, where is that image coming from? And I realized that the image in my head is the planet Tatooine from the original Star Wars with like, the, oh. are you not a Star Wars person? You, no. you look like you don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, like I oh, my watched goodness. some Star Wars in high school because oh, my no. boyfriend liked it. Yeah. That's how a lot of people get it. It might be a dude's thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Anyway, but tell us tell us about this. I mean, it's just a dusty planet where yeah, you know, this kind of barren wasteland. It turns out there's like yeah. sand people in the desert and Jawas running around or whatever. But you don't not in this text, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. But yeah, just a sort of dusty wasteland with no yeah, just dirt. But there is and water. There is water occasionally that uh pops up and waters the land. Yeah. But for no particular reason. It doesn't say, I mean, it did. We don't know how it seems. My translation is a flow would well up from the ground. Yeah. And water the surface of the earth, but for no particular reason, because there's nothing to water. Yeah. But it's sort of like, this is the system that's already there. And if there weren't that system, then it would be harder to plant this garden that God's about to plant. I always think of it as it would be harder to form the little clay man figure. Oh, that's also true. Man wouldn't you can't, stick together. It'd just yeah. be like a pile of dust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly. Uh-huh. That's how I think about it. It's so interesting because this text says, so there was no human being. Oh, sorry. God had not yet sent rain on the earth, mm-hmm. and there was no human being to farm, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've always read this as the reason— that it's not, God has not yet made it rain is because God does not want plants to grow because Ah. there is nobody to take care of the plants once they have sprouted. That's very interesting. It's, it's interesting to me too, I guess, just as a modern person who also does not exactly till the soil myself. Yeah. How primary that relationship is. Like the purpose of the human already in this first part is there was no human to till the soil. Not yeah. there was no human. There was right. no human in the image of God. There was no human to praise God. There was no human to do whatever. Like, there was no human to till the soil. That yeah. was like the, the first the first thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to me, it's so, like in the first, in the first Genesis story, which I know we're not supposed to be talking about, mm. but the plants come first so that people will have something to eat when they are created yeah. on day six. I mean, they they come on day three, the plants do. Here, it's the other way around. So the humans come first so that they can till the garden once Mm -hmm. the garden is planted. It's not said, you know, to eat the garden, although they'll get that permission later. But Mm -hmm. the the order, like the Mm -hmm. sense of responsibility is reversed. It's not that the plants are sustaining the human. It's that the humans are sustaining the garden. Mm, I love that. So verse seven is quite a famous verse. The Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. There is, I mean, you could spend an hour unpacking that verse, I think. Yeah. I'm curious about this idea. Like when you see that image of God forming a human out of the, dirt. What comes to mind for you about what that says about God or humans or the relationship of God and humans? I'll tell you that the first thought in my head is that I I love that it pictures a God that is like an artisan, a potter. Yeah. Like is, is like, it's so, it's so personal and intimate to be you know, we last year our our theme for High Holidays at my synagogue was like clay in the hand of a potter, which is from mm. a liturgical poem that we read over the holidays, but but comes from from this idea that yeah. like we are we are formed 
it's just such a like an intimate connection between the art yeah. and the artisan. And we yeah. are we are the art. I love that, Amy. Yeah, the verb that's used there, the root is yatsar, which is also the root of the word yotzer, which is the word for a potter. And so yeah. this is exactly what you're saying. Like you, yeah, thinking about this as God as an artisan is in the level of the language itself, that the forming is the kind of forming that a, that a potter does. So he, I love that humans are works of art that are intimately, I love that sense of connection you know, the Genesis one God is like, let's make humans. Yeah. And then, bam, there's humans. And it's, you yeah. get the sense that God is so way there's a out far there away. Yes. God is sort of far away and creates by speaking. Yeah. And here, like, God oh, is yeah. like on God's knees in the yes. dirt with God's hands in the dirt, yeah. like making, making something. And that something is us. Yeah. I love that so much. So at this point in the text, it seems like you've got like a little human clay, human shaped clay figurine, like an action figure, but it doesn't have any <laughs> life yet. And so yeah. then you get that language, God blew life's breath into the human's nostrils, mm. which to me is just that the intimacy we were talking about of the molding of the human. Now it's like mouth to mouth. I guess it's not resuscitation. It's just suscitation. Suscitation. <laughs> <laughs> mouth yeah. to mouth mm-hmm. suscitation. But it's like you get the sense of like something that came out of God's like lungs, so to speak, yeah. now has animated this human yeah. being. I mean, it's really a it is a wild and wildly intimate and connecting portrayal. Like I know some people will read this and maybe feel some distress about that notion of an anthropomorphized God and yeah. I just, you know, I, I don't go all the way. I, you know, I think God is far more complicated than we're going to get in any story. So so, so I lean into the parts that feel yeah. true and that sense of like deep, intimate connection and actually having breath that has come from God animating our bodies. Yeah. That's good stuff. In the Christian world, this breath is sometimes read as like the soul Mm-hmm. A human being. Does that happen in your tradition as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, How would you respond to that idea? I mean, there's a close, you know, it's, I think where I'm getting a little stuck in my head is I don't know if the, the Jewish notion of soul is the same as the Christian notion yeah, of soul. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but this word, uh, nishmat from neshama is, is used for, soul, you know, is often translated as soul in the Mm. the Jewish community too, but sort of soul and life breath are, are intertwined ideas. I tend to think of it, yeah, as somewhere between like actual breath and sort of the, the essence of a being, not like the immortal Mm -hmm. soul that is Mm -hmm. separable Mm -hmm. from the body. Yeah. A life force of a person. Yeah, That's I was going to say, like, the, the animating force for this body. Yeah. Okay, I have two other things that I want to talk about about the human. Okay. There's so much in this text. One is that the human, the word that's being used here is Adam, mm-hmm. which we know is the root of the name Adam, as, as the man will be called later. The first thing I think is worth just saying is to note the connection. So the Adam, the human, is made min ha from the ground. So mm-hmm. you've got the Adam from the Adama. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about that, both at the sort of etymological relationship of those two words and also maybe what that suggests about human beings? So the way I hear those words, at least, Adama is a feminine word, and Adam is a masculine word, grammatically masculine word. And so there's a a clear relationship between the two of them. I think they're also related to the word red. Is that right? Edom? Edom is red. Yeah, I've never been clear on the connection. Whether it's like a clay-like substance, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sort of jumping the gun a little bit here, but 
But the word for a man, a different word for a man is ish. Yeah. And for a woman is isha. Yeah. And so later on in the story, when Eve, uh, who we call Eve, the woman, the isha, is taken from material of the ish, it reminds me of this sort of connection between the Adama and the Adam. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about that, Bobby. What do you want to say about it? Yeah, no, that's the other issue that I wanted to raise was about the the nature of this first creature. So on that first point, the Adam and the Adama, like that point that you're making, they are intimately connected and that is captured in the Hebrew language. Adam, mm-hmm. Adama, same root, masculine form, feminine form. Our professor John Hayes used to say, if, if you wanted to capture this in English, instead of calling the first human Adam, you would call him Dusty, which I, I thought was really, like the, the <laughs> word itself captures yeah. the like earthiness. Yeah. Sometimes you hear uh, the human from the humus, mm. uh, which I think also kind of captures that. So that yeah. human beings are fundamentally groundlings. And mm-hmm. to me, that seems really important in this text. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you're raising about the Adam and Adama related to Ish and Isha, first, I think it's really important that this text is about relatedness. Mm-hmm. So human beings are related to the ground at an intimate level. Ish and Isha, men and women, biologically, are related at an intimate level. The thing that's just beyond that conversation is this issue of the word Adam itself, which really means human, mm-hmm. does not mean biological male, right? Mm-hmm. So there is an argument, Phyllis Tribble has made this sort of most famously, that that original Adam, the first creature, was an ungendered mm-hmm. uh, earth creature, a human mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. undifferentiated. I say Phyllis Tribble, but that's actually an ancient rabbinic argument as well. Right. Right. And that the separation of genders doesn't happen until later in this text when the Isha and the Isha are created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, at least in the Christian world, we have thought about God created a man and then out of the man created a woman. But it is equally plausible to read this text as saying God created an undifferentiated human being mm-hmm. that God later separates mm-hmm. into man and woman, Isha and Isha. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about that preference about how to read that or a nuance that I'm missing? I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that you raised that, that sort of stream of interpretation. And I think it makes a huge difference instead of saying that there's, there's a first creature and then the creature needs a helper, which we'll talk later about that translation. And that's a woman, like that's a, a really particular worldview of how gender works. Yeah. And instead saying there is first one undifferentiated human, and then there's some realization that it actually helps to uh, to, to be able to separate yourself out into, into having a partner is meaningful, is, is great. I will, the only thing I will note on that in terms of gender, and it just sort of is what it is in that worldview, the Jewish tradition then goes pretty far about like the meaning of men and women having relationships with each of the heterosexual yeah. relationship. Yeah, like it sure. really yeah. elevates the heterosexual relationship in ways that, that don't work well, at least from my understanding of gender yeah. and relationship in the world. Yeah. We'll get back to that. I think at the end of the text, yeah. when we get the separation and the clinging and all of that and all of that yeah. stuff. So at this point now in the text, there's a human being living on Tatooine and God <laughs> then plants the garden Mm-hmm. And so the garden is there now that there is a gardener. It's a nice place. Like this language of every beautiful tree with edible fruit. Like it just sounds so lush and like you're just, you could just walk around and eat fruit. Yeah. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And trees are, are created for beauty. Like they're, yeah. they're pleasing oh, to that, look like at. That. Yeah. And there's food. And then there are these two more complicated trees. <laughs> yeah. The tree of life. Like that's a nice tree. I like that tree. I mean, the, the tree of life, you know, in the, in the Jewish tradition becomes a primary way of talking about Torah. The Torah is the tree of life. Oh uh, yeah. 
Well, my reading of it has always been that human beings were not created as immortal beings, but they were put in a garden with a tree that would sustain life indefinitely. And so as long as you had access to the tree of life, you would not die. That's the way that I've read it. And you get that a little bit from Genesis 3 after they've eaten the fruit and all the bad stuff happens. God says, we got to kick you out of the garden because now you have knowledge. And if you also have the tree of life, you will become like gods, which I think means you'll be immortal. So I think what happens is as long as you have access to the tree of life, you can eat from the tree of life and your life will be sustained. It's like a fountain of youth almost kind of thing. So humans are, are mortal creatures who have the capacity for immortality because they have access to that tree. That's what I think. Hmm. Maybe. The other tree, you sound so suspicious. The no, other I, tree, I mean, maybe. The other tree, I don't know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, I mean, if you've read further into Genesis, you know that this tree turns out to be a problem. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Anything we want to say about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, I just, I want to raise up a question. Where is the tree of knowledge of good and bad? Or where is the tree of life? In the middle of the garden. The tree of life is in the middle of the garden. Is the tree of the knowledge of good oh. and bad also in the middle of the garden? Oh, I see. I just, I just assumed that that was true. The rabbis say it is true, or some rabbis, because the phrase in the middle of the garden is in between them. Oh, <laughs> but that's yeah. sort of a rabbinic way of, you know. So it points both directions. Reading. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what difference it makes in your reading, if you think of it as being in the middle with the other tree or being someplace else. I mean, personally, part of it is just that I, um, like, why would you put a dangerous tree in the garden? And would you put it in the, like, if the tree of life is the thing you're supposed to have access to and it's right in the middle, is this, is this right next to that tree? Like, it just seems like a tricky way to set things up. Yeah. From the beginning. There's actually a, a really beautiful teaching that maybe I'll talk about in my concluding remarks. I don't know, but that it's actually, there's one trunk from which these two, like oh, they're both exactly yeah. in the center and the tree of life and the tree of uh, knowledge are intertwined. Yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe I'll talk about that later, but it's a little bit of a hop, skip and a jump from, yeah. from the narrative. So I'll put that aside for now. Sometimes when I say to my students, when they say, why would God do that? I I say, sometimes it's better, instead of reading the Bible from heaven down, like, why would God Mm -hmm. do that? It's better to read the Bible from the ground up, Mm -hmm. which is why would human beings tell a story in which the tree of life and the tree of knowledge were connected? And if you ask the question that way, in my mind, you end up to something like this sort of knowledge of good and evil, which I read as moral discernment, is the essence of what being human means, mm-hmm. right, separates us from squirrels. And also it makes human life exceedingly complicated because we can use it for good purposes and we can use it to do evil. And this is just true about human beings. Like we're amazing creatures capable of awful things. And so having that tree like right at the center captures that in this sort of narrative metaphorical way without having to like write a philosophical treatise about it. That's kind of how I tend to think about it. Mm-hmm. No, I like that a lot. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Welcome to Season 5 of Bible Worm and the new year of the Narrative Lectionary. To celebrate the start of the new season, for the month of September, we're making all our Patreon benefits available to subscribers at any level. You can join at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 a month, to receive access to early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies for the whole month of September. At the end of the month, if you want to continue receiving these benefits, you can subscribe at a higher level. If not, you can cancel anytime. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details on becoming part of Bibleworm's Patreon community. Thanks for listening, and now back to this week's episode. All right, Amy, this next section in verse 10 to 14, I have never known what to do with. And so I, I, I'm going to ask you, 
in just a minute, what do I do with that? Okay. Okay. Beginning in verse 10, a river flows from Eden to water the garden. And from there it divides into four headwaters. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It flows around the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. That land's gold is pure and the land also has sweet smelling resins and gemstones. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, flowing east of Assyria. And the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. Amy, what do I do with that? <laughs> the best I've got, it, it is also something that I tend to skim over. But it, it reminds me again, like we talked about in this story, the real like intimacy of like God is on God's needs making something out of mud. <laughs> yeah. And and this for me just shows the like the really uh, the intimate connection to this particular plot of land. Like yeah. whereas the other creation story is so cosmic and big, this one this is the story of your backyard. You know, like this is the story of the little plot of land where God has placed you you know, that you come to know really intimately. And so it matters. It matters to these people. Not any river, not rivers in the abstract. Like these particular ones are created maybe with as much care as we are crafted from the clay. So I'm moved by the particularity of it, but I don't know what else to say about it. As you were talking, the other thing that was occurring to me, I think relatedly, is that sometimes, especially in Christian theology, we get this sense that there's like a heaven somewhere out there that is beautiful Mm -hmm. and perfect and wonderful, which we sometimes talk about in Edenic terms. Mm -hmm. And then there is an earth, which is here, that is inherently corrupted or fallen or something. This text is saying, no, no, like the world in which we live, the earth upon which we uh, uh, move has the capacity to host Eden and let me tell you where it is. Mm. And so like the earth itself has the capacity to be this beautiful, wonderful Mm. place. Now human beings are going to screw that up in the next chapter that we're not going to read. But it's not the earth's fault. It's the human beings that that turn out to be the problem. And so then it sort of elevates in the sense, the capacity of the earth to host goodness and and even to be paradise. Anything else we want to do with that little section? No, I think we should go on because the story is going to get more complicated. Picking up in verse 15. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord commanded the human, eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and brought them to the human to see what he would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But a helper perfect for him was nowhere to be found. So the first part of this text is coming back to a conversation we were having a minute ago about the presence of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Here we get the explicit command, don't eat from that. Anything we have not already said about that that you want to pull out? I think I want to add just one other possible interpretation. I, th- I think you mentioned the interpretation that eating from it, you know, it says as soon as you eat of it, you will die, right? which is not what happens. right? Um, and so we have to fish around for what else that could mean. And I think you suggested that it meant you become mortal, like maybe they could have lived forever if they stayed in the garden. Well, so when you say they became mortal, it suggests that they were immortal, which is not what I think. Okay. What I think is that they were mortals who had access to the tree of immortality. Ah, uh, I see. So okay. they- Functionally were immortal, but it wasn't their essence that was immortal. It was their location. Got it. It was, they had, okay, great. And I just wanted to put one other possibility on the table that comes from a a Jewish interpreter named Rambam, Ramban, Nachmanides, that we could understand this as they will realize they are immortal and live Ah. with the burden of knowing that they will die. Mm. 
which you as a lover of Kohelet might say, that helps you lead a great life. Yeah, yeah. But it is a, it is, it does change things. It does very much change things. It changes things. It is interesting that if you read the text, I mean, any of the ways that we're reading it, human beings were created to be innocent yeah. about good and evil. Like, I don't mean innocent, like, I just, I mean like naive. Naive. Innocent. Like blissfully unaware. Yeah. Yeah. And so the thing that sort of, you know, if you think, I mean, I don't know what you think, but most people that I know think like the essence of humankind is that we're smart, we're shrewd, like we can yeah. imagine the future and make plans and like scheme. And all of the sort of fundamental human things are actually not what we were intended to be able to do, according to this text. We were mm. supposed to have no ability to, I, I think the tree of knowledge of good and evil is about self-awareness to mm-hmm. think of ourselves as objects of our own thought. Mm. Um, and we were not supposed to be able to do that. But that's what makes humans human in, the, in this really, well, I mean, that's in the way that so I normally think about humans. Yeah. Mm. That's so interesting. So human beings here are explicitly given the purpose, which we talked about earlier, of farming the garden and taking care of it. Anything we want to say about that as the task of humans? You know, it's interesting to think about that sort of alongside what you were just saying in terms of what what was the imagined role for humans in the world or what was the imagined nature of humans in the world. I'm not a gardener and 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 so I don't know, but I imagine there are ways in which it's maybe different from agriculture per se. Like you are, you're in a responsive posture. Like you are, the garden is doing its thing and you are, you are tending it instead of, you're not like controlling it. You're not planning it. You're not steering it. You're, you're responding to it and sort of caring for it as it presents itself to you. And that is not how many of us live in the world. Yeah. As you're talking about it, it reminds me, my daughter, who is five, is really into this show called The Lion Guard on Disney Channel. It's basically like The Lion King, but the next generation, Kion, who is Simba's son. But anyway, the circle of life and that whole, like, there is an ecosystem to which we are responsible and we can Mm. eat from it, which Mm -hmm. we just learned. But also we have a job, which is to support it and tend it and, and care for it. That reminds me of that sort of, a uh, lion guard concept of the circle of life. And I think that's what, like here it's, human beings are not an end in ourselves. Our end is to care for everything else. Yeah. And I think we we get that backwards. Many of us, myself included, get that backwards all the time that creation is here to sort of support our life. But in fact, our life is here to support creation, according right. to this text. Right. So in verse 18, God says, it's not good for the human to be alone. So I will make a helper that is perfect for him is how the CEB has it. Mm-hmm. When you read that word alone, what do you, th- like, how do you think of the aloneness of that first human? Do you know what I mean? Hmm. I have never thought about that question. But that human is pretty profound in some ways, profoundly alone. Yeah. Like the only non-plant the only, yeah. creature. Yeah. I mean, the human has a relationship to God. We don't know the extent of the human's awareness of that. It doesn't, we just don't get that perspective. That's really alone. Really, really alone. Yeah. And it's interesting, I know that the the issue later is really the eating from the tree, not the creation of another person. But when you present that idea of like existing in a state where you don't reflect on yourself, like you don't don't have awareness of yourself, that aloneness in a place with with plants that are not thinking anything about you either, (laughs) like it it supports that way of being that you don't have any reason to reflect on yourself because no one's thinking anything about you. There is a story that came out, gosh, I don't know, uh, several years ago now. And there, I heard a podcast about it, but there were magazine articles too about this guy up in 
Maine who had like a pretty regular life. I don't know. He was in his 20s. He worked at an auto body shop. And one day he just drove his car to the corner of the woods and went to live in the woods in Maine by himself. And he managed to stay alive doing that for like 30 years. And, uh, and what's so interesting to me is the way that, you know, people asked him when they finally found him, did you talk to yourself? And in the, he said, in the beginning I did, but after a while, your brain just ceases to sort of think in those terms. Like you don't need to turn things into discrete thoughts and reflect, like comment on things. Like you're just in the flow of things and there are no... There, there. No one's thinking anything about you. You don't need to think anything about this. You just need to. You just need to be. It's yeah. so different than living in a human society. You don't have to yeah. interpret anything. It just is what it is, and you try to keep yourself alive and be part of the system. Yeah. The other way that one could take that aloneness is that there's too much work to be done for mm. a solitary individual. Mm-hmm. I don't like that as much. Like, I just, I mean, you could probably guess that about me. Like, I I like the sort of existential, emotive, like, interpretation. Yeah. One reason that that it's important is because it is the aloneness that is the motivator for what happens next, which is Mm -hmm. that God decides to make a helper that is perfect for him. Mm -hmm. And so that word helper, azer in the Hebrew, what... How do you take that word helper in this moment? Like we're not, we're looking for an azer. The man, need, the man needs a azer. And yeah. so what does that, what does that mean? Do you think? I mean, this word, at least in, in the past few years, this phrase in particular, azer connecto, how those two things fit together. Azer usually means help. It, but a, but a powerful kind of help, like a yeah. rescue salvation kind of help, yeah. like God is referred to as as yes. Azer. There are some other like cognates in other languages that suggest power, and also there's a cognate in Arabic that suggests a young woman. So some people sort of go in that direction. Oh, interesting! I didn't. I had not heard that. Yeah, but it's interesting to have it put together with. Connecto, which means sort of like opposite, opposite you. Yeah. The way I like to read it as sort of like a, a powerful, a powerful help, a powerful force that is sort of like your opposite, like your opposite in a play. Like you're yeah. they they sort of hold their own against you. <laughs> They're your equal. They're your your balance, your yeah. something, something like that. I like that, Amy. And I really, I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that when in the Psalms, when the psalmists say, oh Lord, our helper, like that's mm-hmm. this word. And so it is the kind of thing that a human being can say about God, like a rescuer or a protector or a, mm-hmm. something like that. I think that. I think that's important. That the connecto there, I think it may be the NRSV, I'd have to look, has like corresponding to him or something like that, mm-hmm. which I think captures that like, somebody who on the same level who can like help. So there are two now who can help one another Mm -hmm. in corresponding ways. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like assistant. Yeah. It's not like the side. It's not like Adam has a secretary, like, (laughs) which I feel like is kind of how it gets interpreted through, you know, histories of patriarchal readings. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's not that. Yeah. So God's initial solution to this problem that the the human needs a helper is to create the animals Mm -hmm. and bring them to the human for naming. I just, I, to me, this sounds, I just love this image of God because I mean, this image, this God is sort of working like I work, which is like, I don't really have a plan. And I do like I do the next thing, and then I'm like, how do I do the thing after that? And then I'm like, I right. don't know. Let me try this. Right. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, then I got to try something else. Yeah. And so I just picture God being like, oh, oh, I didn't think about the fact that there's not a like, like that this person is alone. So yeah. let me bring you an aardvark. <laughs> let's, see what, see. let's see what happens next. Let's see what I mean, happens it really next. is. 
it goes back in some ways in my mind to that sort of artisan model. Yeah. Like, you are making art and things happen, and then you respond to the things that happen. Yeah. Maybe there's a plan for a piece of art to begin with, but I think the best art really, it unfolds, and this yeah. is the unfolding of this. Yeah, it's like a jazz musician, kind of. Whether There's like a structure, and then mm-hmm. you know people are riffing and creating new things. And you know, one of the things, I think it was Miles Davis, was like, there's no such thing as a wrong note when you're playing jazz. It all depends on what happens next. So it's like the, you know, any any little improvisation that happens can be turned into something. I think of I think of this God that way. Now the human being is naming all the creatures. Anything you want to say about, about that? I just think it's, I mean, honestly, I this particular time reading through, I just loved the image that like God would bring the animals to the human to see what it would call them. Yeah. Like, what about the, it again is so sort of like intimate and playful. Yeah. Like, what do you think about, what do you think about this one? And whatever yeah. sound the human makes, that's now that thing's yeah. name. Yeah. It's just so sweet. Do you, I sort of envision um, the human here as like, God's like, not only like, what do you want to call this one? But like, is this a, is this a helper corresponding unto you? And then the. Yeah. And then the human is like, nope. <laughs> and God's like, okay, like here is a wallaby. But how does that one work? Yeah. Yeah, that that's what I picture too. Like God creating all these animals and just sort of like presenting them as little, what do you think about this one? Yeah. And Adam would give it a name, but would not uh, yeah. see it as it, its equal. So at the end of that process, then we get the statement there is, no perfect helper is found. One of the things that I, is so interesting to me about this text is that everything is like a respond to a lack, right? So there's, there's no garden because there's no human. So let's create a human so we can have a garden. Then there's no helper. So let's create all the animals. And then there's no corresponding mm-hmm. helper. So let's do the next thing. It's like everything is responsive to a perceived imperfection. I don't, imperfection might not be right, but a perceived absence. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's such an interesting structure for this text. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so in verse 21, so the Lord God put the human into a deep and heavy sleep and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, this one finally is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She will be called a woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. So here we get what we were talking about earlier, which is the where before we had one Adam. By the end of this text, we have a woman, Isha, taken from a man, Ish. And so now we clearly have two differentiated genders, Ish and Isha. I don't know really what the question is, but I know that you have thoughts about this kind of like creation of genders and the connectedness of those of those people. I mean I I think at least right now what I have is it is a a question? I don't know. It's so interesting to me that, you know, Adam is formed from the Adama, from the land, and all yeah. the animals are formed from the Adama. Yeah. It seems like something else formed from the same thing that Adam was formed from should have been a good match. Like, then they would have been made of the same raw materials. Yeah. So it almost implies that, like, there's almost been some kind of like alchemy, some kind of change in in the the nature yeah. of Adam that in order to have a parallel now, like there's something has happened. I don't know if it's because of, you know, God's breath into Adam has like settled in a little bit and and whatnot, but it's kind of it is strange that Adam is the raw material. Yeah. It's strange. Yeah. And the verb changes there too, as you know. It's in verse twenty-two, uh, Vayivin. It's the God mm. built a woman. God built of, a woman yeah. instead of 
forming. Yeah. So I, mm. it's just an interesting, like, yes, the, like the, to me, that verb to build is more complicated, more like, yeah. it's like it advances upon yeah. what was already there. It's more like engineering. Yeah. <laughs> this text has sometimes been used, often been used to say that women are derivative of men because men came first, women were taken out of men. And so they're like secondary. I mean, one of the things that I say about that to my students is like, okay, if what we're saying is that whatever comes second is inferior to whatever comes first, if I give you that premise, then you have to say that men are inferior to the dirt, right? Because they were taken Mm -hmm. out of the dirt. So if we want to follow the logic, let's follow the logic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what you're pointing out about the raw materials and the building and the engineering is in a really kind of interesting way suggesting that the woman is an an advance upon or a retooling of. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. quite know how, what that verb should be. But it's not about the secondary status of women. It's about the Mm -hmm. complexity Mm -hmm. of the woman that has been created. I go back and forth in this moment about, like, I still, I want to read this text as there was a gender undifferentiated human being. Mm -hmm who has now had a rib removed and a woman built. And then what's left is the man. And so that that one kind of human Mm -hmm. being has now been differentiated in that way. And so what's left is now two creatures, neither of whom is the creature that was there previously. Right. Both of which are from the Mm -hmm. same substance. Mm -hmm. I don't know what difference all of that makes, but it's such rich ground for talking about gender dynamics and how do we think of men and women and, and all of those things in both I, really yeah. constructive and really complicated and problematic ways. No. And I think that because that conversation seems to flow so naturally from this account of creation, it's, it's really important to at least raise up that other possibility, <laughs> you know, that, that we're starting with an undifferentiated human and the two humans who, who are present at the end of the story, neither of them are that first human yeah that's the way that's the way I have tended to read this Mm. the Adam says which might complicate that reading actually (laughs) the the, the Adam is still being referred to here but this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh so in in some way the human is saying this creature that has been created that I'm going to call woman is different mm-hmm. than all these other creatures. And the difference is bone of bone, flesh of flesh. What do you think that bone of bone, flesh of flesh, like, is it just like literally taken from my bone and flesh? I mean, I think the best way I can read it is that this creature is is fundamentally like me in a way that nothing else in creation is. And that's what allows this creature to truly be my sort of balance point in the world. I think that's right. That, That expression, bone of bone and flesh of flesh, it doesn't show up other places exactly like that. But when the notion that someone is my bone and my flesh shows up, in the Hebrew Bible, it's about relatedness. Like you're my Mm. people. Mm -hmm. So when Jacob shows up in Genesis 29 in Mm -hmm. Haran, Laban says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Right. And Mm -hmm. you can come up with other examples of that. And so you're, you are my people. We are, we are, we're family. Mm -hmm. Going back to your point about, isn't it enough that humans and aardvarks come from, the ground, like, so in that sense, they're related. This is sort of advancing on that one step. So like both being related to the ground is not the same as being fundamentally related to one another, I think. So I read this as being about family relationships. Like this is, mm. this is my person. Mm-hmm. This was, this, this is the one corresponding to me, the one like me, the one equal to me, the one to whom I belong in a way that I belong differently 
to other, other creatures. Now, this whole thing, I don't know. I don't know how much verse 24 should control our reading. It's a, it always feels bumpy to me that this story ends in a etiology of marriage is basically what it does. Mm-hmm. This story that we just told is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife or clings to his wife. They become one flesh. What should we do with that verse? You know, it's interesting because when you're talking about bone of bone and flesh of flesh, I was like, that's how I, if I, if I think of that paradigm ever, it's how I think of my blood relationships, my yeah. children and my parents and my sisters. And so I guess I could see wanting a story about why those relationships are usually not the ones that carry the day in the long term. By that, you mean that you then form a family with someone else? You, yeah, becomes- usually people form, form a family with someone else. And, you know, I know that or I imagine that this text has like a, you know, marital union in mind. But even if it's not a marital union, you know, we we find our families and we build our lives and generally speaking, you know, find people who are our right sort of opposites in the world, whatever that looks like. Um, and it's not usually your parents. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a little, in- it's interesting that that needs an explanation. And like, there was a reason that this story was told. Like there was that that question in people's mind, I guess, why do people leave their home of origin and partner with others. I think that's really important too in the reading of they became one flesh. Sometimes that's read sexually. Like Mm -hmm. when a man and a woman have sexual intercourse, they reunite the Mm -hmm. flesh that was originally separated in that moment of creation. Mm -hmm. To me, the better reading is reading flesh as family relationships like we were just doing. So then this becomes not about why do men and women have sex? It becomes about why do people form new families? Mm -hmm. If you read it that way, then this whole text has been about relatedness and the relatedness of humans to God and the relatedness of humans to the ground and humans to animals and women and men and now family units to previous family units. Like there's a sort of intricate web of the way that we're all connected, which I think is a really lovely place Mm -hmm. to end end up a creation story. Yeah, I love it. We get this final little note about nakedness and not embarrassment. Mm -hmm. In this context, I don't quite know what to do with that. Like I want to talk about that when we get to Genesis 3 in two years or whatever it is. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. is there anything we should do with the they're naked? I mean, it just ties back to me to – you know, you were talking about Levado, like alone. Yeah. The, the human was alone, and that was a sense of sort of like a lack of self-awareness or ego or, you know, and ego and shame are on a continuum. Like humans slide back and forth between ego and shame, but it's all built on this uh, self-awareness or assumptions about what other people think of us. And so in part, I think we could read that as there is another human now, but they're still somewhat in that yes. state of yes. they're they're not self-aware. And maybe this is the most obvious way that humans at that time, maybe humans at this time would be self-aware is to be naked in front of other people. Yeah. I don't know. I love that, Amy. So there's this, because like the thought of that as you were describing that, like to be around other people and not to be conscious about what they were thinking of you or whether they were judging you or whether they were you know, critiquing you. Like, mm-hmm. I just had this, like, a lightness of heart right there. I was like, oh, that would be amazing. And you occasionally achieve that in life. Like, the place that I've noticed most is with my kids, when, especially when they were really young and they're, they're not yet yeah. in the, like, oh, dad stage. Yeah. There's just this, like, direct relationship in which no judgment, no critique is necessary. Like, that would be amazing if you could live your life that way. Apparently that is how we were created to live, at least according to Genesis 2. Yeah. There's a, um, a an African-American spiritual called There Are No Mirrors in My Nana's House. 
Oh, I love that. No, I haven't. I just, I love it. I love it so much. It's a children's book too. I mean, sort of based on the words, but yeah, just the idea that, just the idea of that, like, what would it be like to live in a world without real mirrors or metaphorical mirrors in your face all the time asking you to, what do you think about yourself now? How about now? How do you think other people see you? Like, it's really, it's exhausting. Yeah. All right, Amy. So that brings us to the point in our conversation where we try to make connections with the world as we're living in it today. Mm. What are you seeing in this text? What am I thinking? I'm thinking about this idea of a an Azer Conegdo, a helper or or rescuer who is opposite you. And I want to lean a little bit into the idea of the opposite part, like who is opposed to you, because some interpreters reading this have been like, how can you be a helper and also be against someone? So there's a a commentary from 19th century Poland that talks about these two rabbis who are kind of famous in the Talmud for being study partners who argued vehemently all the time, Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yohanatan. And it it describes them as being neged, as being like opposed to each other. But their relationship was so important and fruitful to the Jewish people because, you know, one of them would raise 24 objections and the other one would throw it, like throw all of them down. And just instead of just agreeing or sort of letting it go or deciding not to talk about it anymore. Yeah. And so... What I'm thinking about as I read this, yes, yes to, you know, the long-term partnerships that we form, but also, and also, it makes me think about what are the real relationships in my life with people who I would consider to be sort of opposite me in some way or another, and what is the fruitfulness of those relationships, and how do I soften myself enough to stay in them and not to run from them or refuse them. And that this is, I think, being in those relationships is is part of the design. We need people who will push back on us and oppose us. And maybe that's our life partner and maybe it's a whole bunch of other people, but that's what's on my mind. I really love that, Amy. And it like it both like is helping me think about how do I relate to people who are difficult for me and challenge me a lot and like how can I find value but it's also helping me think about like what is the essence of family relationships and like what do I want and partners and what do I need from my friends and Mm -hmm. like to think like yes that sort of helper corresponding helper in front of who's willing to engage with me in real ways and not in I don't know what the word is but shallow ways you don't need a yes man Yeah, someone who's really in it. Which is funny because just like three minutes ago, I was saying, wouldn't it be a wonderful world if no one ever critiqued you? (laughs) And now (laughs) now we're like, oh yeah, critique, like that's how, that's how you really know. I mean, I feel like that's, those are the two different models of life that are being held up here is, yeah, yeah. like the unselfconscious one and the one where someone's going to push you all the time. Yeah. I might rather live in the woods, but I recognize that's a problem. One of the things you could sort of draw from there is like, because they're not self-conscious. We get that, like there is now a a partner corresponding and yet there is no self-consciousness. And so that suggests that there is a way in which we can stand in front of one another in ways that are worthy of the Mm. name of relationship and yet don't create self-consciousness, right? So Mm -hmm. you can challenge someone without undermining their self-confidence yeah, uh, or making them feel bad about themselves. And that maybe that should be the goal is to be somebody who can grapple in that sort of way. Yeah. I really love the kind of person who can, who can hear, who can hear someone's thoughts without doing that to ourselves. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I love that, Amy. Uh, And my head went in such a different direction but I'm kind of lingering over that. I, I'm thinking about the sort of fundamental relatedness mm-hmm. in this text. And we've sort of been drawing out those relationships. They all fall apart in the next chapter. <laughs> uh, but this chapter <laughs> well, we don't have is, to read that this year. So. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this chapter is giving us this sort of the way the world was created to be 
in, at least according to this text, is this sort of fundamental relationship between God and humans, like human beings have God's very life breath in us. Mm. Uh, humans and the ground, humans and responsibility for the garden to tend and to keep. Humans, animals were created as companions and partners and helpers for human beings. And they might not have been found equal to the task of being corresponding to a human being, but nonetheless created for partnership. Yeah. And uh, men and women, people of all genders created as in relationship with one another, not in antagonism to one another. It's just such a beautiful view of what the world is and what creation is and what human beings are. And I think very much in contrast to the way that human beings often think about ourselves as sort of autonomous beings whose job is to like take care of ourselves and our people and Mm -hmm. heck with what happens to other people out there. Uh, Thinking of the environment as something to be exploited for human gain is often how the world works. This text is cutting against all of that. It's not about autonomy. It's not about individuality. The aloneness, the solitariness is actually one of the things that's corrected in this text human beings fundamentally are meant to be in relationship. And I just think if you, if you think that way, like that gets played out in the Hebrew Bible in all kinds of interesting ways later about, you know, loving God and loving neighbor, which we'll we'll get to eventually, but that sort of the essence of humans, the essence of creation is relatedness Mm -hmm. between us and each other, us and creation, us and God. I think that says that sets the foundation for everything else Mm -hmm. I think that happens in the biblical text. Yeah. Yes. We're part of the system. We're part of a much greater system. All right, Amy, next week we are moving on to Genesis chapter 18, which is the birth of Isaac, 18 and 21. Oh, wow. The birth of Isaac. Yeah, lots happens. Just really put the pedal to the metal there. Okay, great. (laughs) We just created the world and now there's Isaac. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's where we're headed. Okay. I will will fast forward in my mind. Yes. And we'll get there. All right. It's good to be back with you, Amy. I'm doing the Bible worm thing. My life feels anchored again. (laughs) (laughs) It is good to be back. We are, we are opposite each other in the best ways. Indeed. All right. I'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next week when we'll be discussing Sarah's laughter and the birth of Isaac. It's told in Genesis 18, 1-15 and 21, 1-7. Until then, keep on digging.